Hello, and welcome to the History of Religion podcast. I am J.A. Graham, and this is episode 15 of the History of Christianity series titled The African Center. Last episode, we focused on two Christians from Alexandria, Egypt, and how they were interacting with the rest of the Christian movement and the empire. Today, we are moving to another North African city called Carthage. We will look at some Christians there and then give an overview of how North African Christianity was developing at the time. We don't really know anything about the origins of Christianity in North Africa. In the episode on the disciples, we noted how it was rumored that some disciples had made it to Ethiopia and Egypt. Both of these areas claim to have Christian roots going back to the disciples. Ethiopia still today uses what is called the Ethiopian Orthodox Bible, which is purported to be older than the other versions of the Christian Bible. And it does contain ancient Aramaic, and the Old Testament translation seems to have been assisted by ancient Jews before the time of Christ, possibly. It is safe to say that Christianity was present in Northeast Africa very early, perhaps before 90 AD. This is likely because of the city of Alexandria itself, which was so important to the Roman Empire. Though there is not much evidence of Christianity, actually none in Northwest Africa before 180. However, in 180, there are 12 Christians from Sicilium, modern-day Tunisia, who were martyred in Carthage. This probably means that Christianity had some presence there for some time before then. Carthage was probably in the top four of important cities for the Roman Empire, so it is not too large of a leap to say that Christianity would have found its way there pretty early on. We just do not have the evidence of it, though. However it began, Christianity in North Africa had taken a stronghold by the end of the second century. We have already noted one of the main Christians from Carthage during this time, Tertullian. Tertullian lived from 160 to 225 and did most of his work from 196 to 212. He argued against paganism and for the Roman emperors to stop killing Christians. Not only was Christianity robust at the time for it to be persecuted, but there were multiple sects of Christianity as Tertullian's writings reveal. His conversion to Montanism around 207 is strong evidence that there were multiple streams of Christianity in North Africa at that time, all trying to come out on top. In fact, a new sect of Montanists arose who followed Tertullian himself, named the Tertullianists. They survived until the 5th century in Northwest Africa. Tertullian's influence would be shaken off as he focused on the presence of the Holy Spirit as the marker of the church, and the direction of the Proto-Orthodox was focusing on the marking of the true church by unity under a structure of bishops and hierarchy. This made Tertullian unpopular to use as a reference for later Christians, who instead will look to tradition and structure to form much of their arguments for the new movement. It was under the emperor Septimius Severus, who sounds like a Harry Potter figure, that the famous martyrdoms of Perpetua and Felicity occurred. Septimius was seeking to strengthen the empire through homogenizing the population's religious beliefs, but his policies resulted in persecution for both Jews and Christians. Christianity enjoyed some peace after his death in 211. It was not until 235 when Maximinus became emperor that wide-scale persecution would arise again in the empire. The reason for the new persecution was rumored to be that Maximinus was disturbed by the Christian presence in the previous emperor's family, which means that Christianity was spreading up the social ladder quickly. We do not know much about the persecutions under Maximinus other than a few accounts from Christian sources which detail 50 to 60 people being thrown into pits at a time, slain without a trial, and being torn in half by horses, Colosseum deaths, and drownings in the river. Yet all this would pale in comparison to what was to come in the middle of the century. In 249, the emperor Decius came to the throne. Christian historians despise Decius. 
He has been presented as a terrible leader and just an awful human being. Yet he probably was neither. He was probably a mediocre leader and a traditional Roman in a difficult position, which was that the empire was in decline. He was trying to restore the empire to its former glory, and so he looked to its history to find ways of bringing back that glory. An obvious reason for the decline to Decius was that the Romans had abandoned the traditional gods, and now those gods were a little bit pissed. So Decius gave a decree that the old gods must be worshipped through the empire. It was less that Christianity was illegal, which it was, but more that everyone now had to be pagan, which put the Christians in a bind. Decius took lessons from the previous attempts to destroy the Christians. He noticed that the more public the persecutions, the more Christianity spread. Persecution actually helped the Christian movement. Thus, the new approach involved focusing on making Christians recant rather than publicly kill them. So those who worshipped and sacrificed to the Roman gods were given a certificate as proof that they had complied with the imperial decree. It was called a libellum. Those that did not have the certificate were considered criminals or outlaws. This caught the new generation of Christians off guard, who had not experienced serious persecution for decades. Some fled the persecution. Others forged fake certificates. Some bought certificates. Some gave in and offered sacrifices when brought to the authorities. And some stood firm in the face of the persecution. There were few martyrs, actually, because that would hurt Decius's goal. Rather, the method was torture and bribery. It was noted earlier that Origen did die from Decius's torture. Rather, he died later on from implications of the torture. This new method from the empire created a new category of Christians in the church, those called confessors. Up until Decius, those that held to their faith had been martyred, but now they were tortured and released. Those that had kept the faith during those times were called confessors. It was a very high title for Christians. Decius' persecution was brief since he was succeeded by Gallus in 251, so just a few years. It is interesting to think of how Christianity would have adapted to the longer persecution by Decius if he had ruled for decades rather than a few years. His method definitely caused issues for the Christian movement. It led to serious questions of what to do with those who had recanted their faith but now wanted back into the Christian church. This question was addressed by the final North African for this episode, Cyprian of Carthage. Cyprian was born Thasius Cyprian in Carthage to a well-off family around 200. It is not clear what he did before his conversion, but he probably managed his family's large estates in the region. He converted at around 46 years old and began giving away his family's wealth to the poor, which made him very popular. Soon after this display of generosity, he was made the Bishop of Carthage in 248. During the persecution of Decius, Cyprian fled to the desert. There he led the church and received some criticism for it, but others saw it as necessary. This sort of exemplifies how the church had transitioned from a decentralized movement to a structured organization by this time. Cyprian returned after the persecution ended and began holding church councils to assess the damage done. Cyprian wrote epistles to the other churches in order to give advice, and in addition to these epistles, he wrote two important works for Christianity. The first is called The Concerning of the Lapsed, and the second is On the Unity of the Church. Cyprian was influenced by Tertullian a lot. This means that he understood the scriptures more literally than his fellow North Africans who lived in Alexandria. He believed that the communion or Eucharist affected the dead in some way. He set forth an idea of communion that was sacrificial and efficacious, which would take a stronghold in the Christian movement. His work of concerning the lapsed was about the issue of those Christians who had recanted their faith during the persecution and now wanted to be admitted back into the church. 
There were two issues for those who wanted back into the church. When should the lapsed be accepted back? Immediately or after some period of time? And number two, who has the authority to make this decision? The latter question resolved the first one and was what Cyprian really brought to the Christian movement. Cyprian argued that the bishop had the final say in the matter. His opponents argued that confessors, or the church, who had more spiritual credit to them, should decide. He also said that those that had recanted should be allowed back into the church, but after a time when they would prove their sincerity by doing what's called penance. A presbyter in Carthage named Novatus disagreed. He broke with the church and started his own. They allowed Christians to re-enter the church more easily. Yet in Rome, there was another presbyter named Novation. He thought Cyprian was too lenient. He broke with the church and started a new church that would never allow those that had recanted to re-enter. The new church was called the Novationist Church. It would spread all over the empire from Spain to Syria. It would become a powerhouse for the next few centuries, especially in a new city called Constantinople in a century or so. This movement led to another issue for Cyprian. What if one was baptized and became a Christian in the Novation Church? Then they joined the Proto-Orthodox Church. Should they be rebaptized? Cyprian said yes. His argument was that outside of the church, or the Proto-Orthodox movement, there was not an effective sacrament which included baptism. In other words, the bishops had the magic monopoly on sacraments, something Cyprian got from Tertullian. But Cyprian could not even get everyone in the Proto-Orthodox Church to agree with him. Cyprian had gained too much influence in the Christian world and was seen as a threat by other bishops, mainly the one in Rome. Stephen, the Bishop of Rome, is often considered the first real pope in Christian history. He did not like the power and influence that Cyprian had, and he did not agree that baptism was only effective within the church. He decided to take Cyprian head-on, along with the entire Northwest African church. Cyprian was up for the challenge, though, and eventually held the North African church together against Stephen. Not only that, but the churches in Asia Minor agreed with Cyprian, too. Basically, the entire Proto-Orthodox Church agreed with Cyprian, except for the churches in Rome that were under Stephen. So Stephen acted very cool-headedly and just broke off relations with all of the churches and threatened to excommunicate them. Cyprian and Stephen finally had their argument resolved when Valerian became emperor in 253. He started the persecutions up again, and both Cyprian and Stephen were probably martyred at the end of the decade. By all of this schism makes Cyprian's second work a bit ironic. The unity of the church was as important as his work on the lapsed. In it, he set forth his argument that salvation was tied to the church, and the church belonged to the bishops. Basically, he founded the structure and hierarchy that all later Christians will use to build their forms of Christian church. It is very interesting to note that his opposition, the church in Rome, will be the main proponent of this structure in the future. Cyprian is noted to have said, Where the bishop is, there is the church. So the church was now a well-structured, monopolized hierarchy of well-educated Roman men. Without this development, many historians do not believe that Christianity would have survived all that it did for the next millennia. Not only this, but it provided the structure that will eventually become the most expansive and powerful in the West traditionally. So Cyprian is pretty damn important not only for Christianity, but for the West and the world. Next time we will turn our focus to other parts of the Christian movement during the 2nd century, where there is still more persecution to come. So I hope to see you then, here on the History of Religion podcast.